Gunn takes the snap, shovel pass ahead to Montgomery, to the end zone for the touchdown! And Aaron Rodgers has just become the 11th quarterback in NFL history to throw for 300 career touchdowns. It's 8.36. This is Jeff Wagner. We are joined by the Monday morning quarterback, Wayne Larrabee, the hardest working man in sports broadcasting. Wayne, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. <laughs> what time did you get back from Atlanta last night? Uh, to Milwaukee, about 4.30. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Wayne, um, all right, a lot of questions. By the way, our phone lines are open, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you have questions for the voice of the Green Bay Packers, um, he is here to answer them. Wayne, let's uh, get started. Obviously, yesterday was a disappointing game. What's overall your, your big takeaway? from? What's your Packer fans' takeaway from that uh, game last night? Uh, wow, you know, I thought they showed a lot of grit in coming back and uh, trying to make a game of it. Uh, a lot of things are going wrong. The thing that uh, struck me is in that first half, and really that's the only half that, um, yeah, that that's really where the game was hanging in the balance. I thought Atlanta, unfortunately, um, from a Packers standpoint, got what they wanted when they wanted it. I get that. That's it's interesting you should say that because that that was the the the, the way the game starts. Packers defer. They kick off. They have a good special teams play that pins Atlanta. I think inside their own fifteen, and then Atlanta, the, the the Packers revamp defense just isn't able to stop them. It looked like almost a replay of the NFC Championship game. Not pass rush can't get home. Julio Jones running free for big games. I mean, is was the defense disappointing? And is the defense good enough to compete with teams like Atlanta moving forward? Well, a week ago we said this would be the barometer game for the Packers' defense, and in some ways it is um, when you consider that Atlanta's the best offense in the NFC and Atlanta's the best team in the NFC. Um, so, you know, that was disappointing, but you have to understand there are also some injuries involved, and uh, because things are where they are now doesn't mean they're going to be this way in January. And, you know, things will change, teams will evolve. Hopefully uh, the Packers' defense will continue to improve and get better. Uh, as we go along, uh, we'll see. Uh, the injuries are a big part of it, Jeff, and, and they're happening all over the league. And, um, you know, it's as a fan, as an observer, uh, it's really disappointing to see injuries play such a huge role in how these games go. Well, you know, Wayne, it's, it's interesting you should mention that because when, when I saw that both of the Packers' starting tackles, you know, Blaga and Bakhtiari, were inactive, my, my first reaction and the reaction of some of the people I was with is, well, Number one, we hope Aaron Rodgers doesn't get killed. And number two, that that's pretty much the game. How are you going to be able to compete? That Losing those two starting tackles had to be a killer. Yeah, it was because it changed the game plan, Jeff. Uh, suddenly they weren't able to do what they would like to do against Atlanta, and that is take some shots downfield and, and really press that coverage a little bit. Um, you know, they were they had to go to a very quick get the ball out of your hand almost as soon as it gets to you uh, type of passing game. And, you know, again, this may, this is the kind of game Randall Cobb flourishes in, and he had a great ball game last night, I thought. Um, but it, what it did was it limited what the Packers could do offensively, especially in the passing game, and to a maybe a lesser degree, but a, a degree nonetheless, the ground, ground game as well. Because you don't have your two best tackles out there, and, and there's a big drop-off in terms of experience to the next man up. When when the game got out of control, I mean it was twenty four to seven at halftime. Then there's the fumble and they run it back. It's thirty four to seven. I guess 
maybe I'm speaking for just some of the Packer fans at home, but I'm thinking, why leave Aaron Rodgers in there to, to get him killed? Because <laughs> the truth is, it's the second game of the year. You are all likelihood aren't going to win. And he took some really vicious shots, including one in the last minute of the, of the game. Um, is, does there come a time when you just pull him out and say, okay, look, we're, we're going to come back and play again next week? Yeah, well, you know, they're not – this is interesting, Jeff, because obviously a lot of people feel that way. But you have to understand how these guys are wired. They're not wired like you and me, okay? They're not wired to throw in the towel. They're wired to go after it regardless of the odds, regardless of the deficit, all the way through. And that's the mentality of the coaching staff and of the players. They don't quit on this stuff, you know? They don't throw in the towel. Well, you know, we might have thrown in the towel at halftime, some of us out there. But they don't do that. And they, they go right down to the wire uh, giving it everything they have. And, you know, I admire that on one hand. On the other hand, and yeah, I do worry a little bit about the health of Aaron Rodgers in a situation like that. But nonetheless, that's I'm just telling you, that's the way they're wired. The game is never, it's it's not out of reach until the game is over. Um, our number is 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you've got any questions or comments for the voice of the Green Bay Packers, Wayne Larravee. Wayne, let's talk to Dean in Reedsburg. Dean, good morning. Good morning. I had a question for Wayne. And, you yes. know, momentum is the biggest part of the game. So why didn't the Packers, when they won the coin flip, why didn't they elect to receive? I mean, to me, that didn't make any sense. That made as much sense as leaving Ann Rodgers in at the end of the game. Um, they always, they almost always, well, I wouldn't say always, they, more often than not, uh, Mike McCarthy likes to um, give up that first possession because he, he's trying to steal an extra possession, get the ball at the end of the first half, and then uh, receive the opening kick to start the second half. And, and a lot of times that works out really well. Uh, there's no question about that. And, in fact, the Packers, Jeff, were in a position to do that. Um, you know, they got the football less than two minutes ago in the game, a couple of penalties, and then Aaron Rodgers trying to take one of the few shots he took deep downfield right. down the sidelines was intercepted by Desmond Trufant with, uh, you know, 47 seconds ago, and then the Falcons scored a quick touchdown there, and that that really is where the game changed irrevocably. That's That was it right there, 24-7 uh, to now at halftime, and, and that changed everything. And, uh, you know, uh, that's the situation. That's what they're trying to do. That's their idea get an extra possession at the end of the first half, last possession, first half, first possession, second half. Wayne, as long as we're talking about that, that's those sequences at the end of the first half, which clearly, you know, I, I think probably changed the whole tide of the game. Let's talk about the most controversial play. It's 17-7. to Packers are backed up. They hit a big play to Randall Cobb over the, over the middle where he gains 30 or 40 yards. It's called back a pick play called on the tight end Bennett. You look at all the replays, and it, it doesn't look like that happened. I mean, was that a bad call? Yeah, I, it looked like it to me. It looked like a bad call to me. There's no doubt. They they called a couple of pick plays um, out there, and, and uh, you know, that you're right, Jeff. I mean, that was a 36-yard pass play to Randall Cobb, and all of a sudden you get a pick uh, call on uh, Martellus Bennett, and and now the Packers are backed up to their eight-yard line or to their right. seven-yard line. And, uh, you know, that's the thing that, boy, you know, a lot of that's subjective. You can't replay that type of thing. It's a judgment call by the officials on the field, and, and it looked like a questionable call to me. Yeah, because that, I mean, really, if you, I mean, I, I understand taking nothing away for, from Atlanta, but that was kind of a game-changer, 17-7. 
if the Packers are driving, maybe they go down, maybe they score at 17-10, 17-14, going into the half, they get the ball back. Instead, it's 34-7 in a heartbeat, um, or at least 24-7. That got, got to look at that as potentially a game changer. Sure, I, I think there's no question about that. It, it did have a major impact on the football game, uh, and especially since Atlanta went and cashed uh, cashed in right after that. Wayne, let's take a very quick break. We've got a number of people who have questions and comments for you. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's the Monday Morning Quarterback with Wayne Larrabee, 844-620 WTMJ. It's 848. Jeff Wagner. Shotgun Montgomery to his right. Snap day right. Gets a block from Montgomery. Lofts it down the left side. Adams over the shoulder. Attempt is made. Diving grab. Touchdown. They beat Robert Alford. A sensational grab by Devontae Adams. And that, of course, is Wayne Larrabee, the voice of the Green Bay Packers. It's the Monday morning quarterback show. Wayne, uh, let's go right back to the phones. Let's talk to Dennis in Nashville. Dennis, good morning. Good morning. Uh, before I ask my question, Wayne, uh, I want to thank you so much for the hours and hours of enjoyment uh, uh, I get from your broadcast. Being a displaced fan, I have to listen a lot on, on the radio or stream, and, and you and The Rock are just awesome. Well, thank and, you very uh, much. And my question is, the first couple series the Packers were using the run, and as soon as they got behind and as soon as they saw that, Atlanta was going to move the ball at will. They they seem to abandon the run, and it, 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 to me that just doesn't it doesn't make sense. It was it, it seemed like it was going better when they were using the run a little bit more. And I'd like your opinion on that. Well, uh, first quarter they ran uh, seven times for twenty eight yards. It's a four yard average with a touchdown by Ty Montgomery. Um, so you're right; they were running fairly effectively at that point in time. But you get into the second quarter there, and Atlanta starts to to collect some steam, and I think the Packers at that point in time um, saw Atlanta clamping down a little bit more defensively in the second quarter against the run, and they went to the short passing game. You know, a lot of times, understand something in the West Coast offense, a lot of times those short passes, those quick little uh, outlet passes to into the flat replace a run. Wayne, let's talk to Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Mike. Mike. I'm Go ahead, Mike. Hi, I'm here. Um, so I wanted to, when McCarthy got his uh, um, penalty for 15 yards disorderly, or not disorderly conduct, but <laughs> anyways, um, it, the penalty he had, I thought he was upset um, the fact that um, the, Atlanta was blocking downfield while the ball was in the air. So I think he was thinking that uh, there should have been a flag thrown on that as well. You can see it because it was out in the flat, and the, and the Atlanta guy was downfield blocking while the ball's in the air. I'm pretty sure that's a penalty, isn't that, if, if that is, in fact, what was happening? Yeah, you can't block until the ball's in the air or, you know, or caught, if, as far as I understand it. Um, but I'd have to look up the rule and, and see it for sure. I don't know. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's what I saw. I, I could see it, and I think he might have been, I don't know if anybody caught it, he could have been arguing the fact, you know, already upset that we were called for it, and then they're, they're blocking downfield while the uh, – but sir, it's pretty evident if you get a chance for the replay. Like I hadn't heard if anybody had asked a question or anything um, afterwards. But that was kind of my thought. No. 
it kind of just made him a little bit more upset. Might be something to go back and check, and maybe uh, yeah. I'm sure he doesn't want to rehash it after today. But um, right. thank you. Yeah, not that it'll change anything. Thanks for calling. Well, speaking of, of that, Wayne. Um, okay, yesterday, you, you know the Packers are going to be in trouble, as we were talking about earlier, when they've got to go into Atlanta and play without their two starting offensive tackles. During the game, Jordy Nelson goes out. Mike Daniels goes out. Devon House goes out. The list goes on and on and on. How banged up is this team after only two games in the season? Uh, we won't know until probably Wednesday at the earliest. Maybe uh, maybe Mike will have some information tonight. He's got a press conference at 7 o'clock. Uh, he might have, be able to shed some light on, on the uh, injury situation. But generally they wait till practice begins on Wednesday to see who's going to be there and who's going to be able to practice and get ready for the game. So we should know more later in the week. Um, the injuries, it didn't appear to me like any of these injuries are season-ending, although I don't know the severity of the shoulder injury suffered by Randall Cobb late in the ballgame. Um, how big a loss was it when Mike Daniels left the game early? No, I think that's huge. He's their best defensive player. Um, sets the tone up front. Uh, I think it allowed Atlanta to carve him up a little bit inside with some of those inside runs that they had with uh, Devontae Freeman. And and I think the as the game wore on, more and more you felt the, the loss of uh, uh, of Mike Daniels for the Packers. You know, Wayne, you alluded to this earlier, that the injuries, and it's not just the Packers. It's, it's teams losing players all over the league. How big a problem is this for the NFL? And, and I mean, NFL, big picture, NFL TV ratings, for example, are down. Lots of factors behind that. But one of them, I've always have to believe, is you've got all these stars who keep who are getting hurt because of the nature of the game. And after a while, I think it gets frustrating for the fans. Yeah, Jeff, I heard your show the other day. Very interesting about the ratings and that type of thing. And, and I, I think you brought up the good point. It, it's not any one thing. Right. It's a compilation of a bunch of issues and i think injuries are a part of it and here here's what let me tell you what one of my sons said about uh, the nfl he says he's not a big nfl fan because you know why dad the injuries decide everything in that game you know the two healthiest teams in the nfl last year new england and atlanta in the you know super where they bowl. ended up <laughs> in the super bowl okay you know and the problem is and this is my pet peeve with the whole thing and, and this is what and i don't have a solution and I know these coaching staffs and these players are in a conundrum, okay? Because bigger, faster, stronger has not made the game better, Jeff. What it's made is more injuries. And here's the thing. You can't practice the way they used to prepare for a football season, okay? You don't have live tackling and practice at training camp. You don't have two-a-day practices. You don't have teams playing any more than maybe a half total of football in a preseason. Nobody of a starting capacity plays the last week of the preseason. So it could be two or three weeks between games for those guys. Now you come to September, and now you go, okay, boys, balls to the fire, four quarters, NFL football. And I'm telling you, nobody's in shape to do that. And, you know, the problem with this league and the problem with the NFL, as I see it, and in, in, in with some of these people who are talking about injuries, and they're right, is that a lot of times if your team is unlucky in September, you'll come out of September and you'll be um, injured beyond recognition. Right. And in a lot of cases, if they're season-ending injuries, it changes everything for your season. So it's really, as an observer, as a fan, that depresses me. And, and to see all these injuries, fortunately for the Packers, I don't think they suffered any season-ending injuries. They'll get these guys back. They'll be good. But um, this is the problem. Coaching staffs can't prepare teams for the season the way to to take on 
the kind of physical play you're going to get starting in September for 16 weeks. They just can't do it. They're not allowed to do it by the CBA. They're not allowed to do it because if they do prepare the way they used to 30 years ago, Jeff, they'll blow each other up on the practice field. And the other thing is in preseason, what's the most degrading thing that could possibly happen to your football team? Lose a star in a preseason game that means nothing. So you don't play your stars very often, very much in the preseason. And, and when you get to September, they're still getting into football shape. They're in shape. Don't get me wrong. They all come to camp in great condition, but they're not in NFL hitting football shape to go through the grind of a four-quarter game and a 16-week season. And that takes a whole month. By October, I tell people this all the time, we'll see the NFL in October. But unfortunately, some teams will be scarred by injury beyond recognition. Wayne, it appears, uh, just to wrap this up, it appears um, disappointing loss yesterday. Packers get kind of a scheduling break. They're at home against Cincinnati. And you know any team on any weekend, I understand that. But Cincinnati appears to be a dumpster fire right now. So Packers appear to be playing them at the right time. Well, Jeff, this is a team, though, that has some very good talent. A.J. Green is a um, you know Julio Jones-type receiver, except that he runs deeper patterns. Uh, they've got a Pro Bowl quarterback in Andy Dalton, and again, they're not playing well right now. They've got, uh, I think, the best rookie running back in the league in Joe Mixon. On defense, Carlos Dunlap and Geno Atkins on that defensive front are just outstanding. They're all pro players. Uh, they've got a couple of uh, talented cornerbacks in Drake Kirkpatrick and Adam Pacman Jones. So this is a team that has more talent than Oh, and two, but they haven't scored a touchdown in 25 possessions yet, and they're the first team to open at home and not score a touchdown, open with their first two games at home and not score a touchdown during those games since the 1939 Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, they kind of scare me, Jeff, because they're due. <laughs> well, hopefully hopefully not next Sunday, my friend. Okay, you, yeah, you get some not. rest, and we will talk to you next Monday morning with the Monday Morning Quarterback. I appreciate your time. Thank you. That's it. That's uh, Wayne Larravee, who uh, got back to Milwaukee 4.30 this morning. Um, Green Bay Packers, it's one game in a long season. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Governor Walker. We're going to talk about Foxconn and the budget and things like that. If you want to see, if you want to see the latest, well, social media posting by President Trump that is creating all sorts of controversy, we're going to talk about that as part of three big things. You can text us the word GOLF to 414-799-1620, and we will send that to you. It's 857. This is Jeff Wagner. You've been listening to the Monday Morning Quarterback with Wayne Larrabee. It's 909. This is Jeff Wagner. After a tough Packers game, I thought we needed some good news, and I am very pleased to be joined by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Governor, good morning. Hey, good morning. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Um, when did you get back from uh, Korea? Uh, late Saturday night. <laughs> and uh, i got to tell you, I spent the whole day on Saturday Saturday Korean time uh, with uh, the members, 270 airmen from the 115th at Truex Field in Madison, Wisconsin. I couldn't have been more proud to see them over there. Very cool. Well, Governor, you know, for people who say that that government can't get things done, I I was looking, the Foxconn deal was announced on either July 25th or or 26th. Here we are less than two months later, and you're going to be signing that bill later on in in Sturtevant today. Um, It's a good day for Wisconsin, isn't it? It is, and it's particularly a good day for people looking for good-paying, family-supporting jobs. For years, candidates running for office have said, you know, elect me and we'll help do that. And uh, I couldn't be more thrilled uh, that today we're going to be signing legislation that will open the door for thousands, literally tens of thousands of good-paying, family-supporting jobs right here in the state of Wisconsin. And you're right, we did it 
on an impressive timeline. Biggest economic development project in the history of the state of Wisconsin. One of the biggest in the history of the nation. Do you anticipate any vetoes, or do you think you're going to sign the bill as is? No, there'll be a couple line on vetoes, just a few things that need to be tweaked to streamline the process, but the substance that remain intact. And uh, a number of the changes that they made, both in the State Assembly and ultimately the State Senate, uh, will uh, will largely remain intact. Things that improve the bill, and we said all the way through the process, we were open to improvements. We weren't going to ram this through in a day or two. It took us a couple months to get the whole thing done, but it's well worth it, and uh, it's a huge win, not just for the people in southeastern Wisconsin where the direct jobs will be, but really people all across the state. $1.4 billion each year in uh, supply chain. That's about, well, it's actually more than four times what Oshkosh Corporation does right now, which is one of the biggest in the state, and uh, we couldn't be more thrilled, not to mention the 10,000-some construction workers that will be needed to build this thing. Governor, were you surprised and or disappointed that this bill got so very little support from Democrats, including Milwaukee-area Democrats, who you would think constituents would serve to benefit from having 5, 10, 13,000 jobs, plus all the ancillary jobs, within 20 miles or so of where their their districts are? Well, the bottom line is people will benefit regardless of whether they're legislator uh, was uh, was willing to help out or not and uh, that that's why I couldn't be more thrilled but it it was amazing to me that cynically there were some politicians in the state who were willing to put their party uh, ahead of uh, ahead of not just the state as a whole but even the interests of their constituents now few exceptions you know Peter Barco uh, was uh, uh, so strong on this he actually ended up getting uh, really getting a coup against him for his leadership because there are Apparently there are some Democrat lawmakers who are so dead set against even the perception of a victory for us that they couldn't stand the fact that here was someone voting for the interests of their district. But for him, for people like Corey Mason Racine, but particularly of late, for your point about Milwaukee, for Jason Fields to stand up and, and make an impassioned plea to say if he's trying to look out for a way to put more African-American men to work, what better than to have thousands of jobs not far away and we're going to make sure that uh, not only in Racine and Kenosha counties, but that for a lot of folks looking for work in Milwaukee, that, that we have a pipeline. And, in fact, very specifically, probably we'll put some transit routes uh, directly to this new uh, this new uh, ecosystem with tens of thousands of new jobs. Governor, one of the remaining controversial um, provisions in the law is the, the portion that allows, if there is the inevitable litigation, which we, we know that there will be, uh, allows essentially a direct appeal to the state Supreme Court. Um, are, are you concerned at all about litigation involving that provision itself? No, I mean, we've had these sorts of discussions in the past. It's just, just about uh, speeding up the process. It still, still gives people their day in court. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, we believe that the law I'll be signing in a few hours uh, is indeed constitutional. It's, it holds the other laws in the state. And the irony is for all the hype and hysteria about this uh, from an environmental standpoint, it really just streamlines the process. The requirements will still be for Foxconn, like any other business, big or small alike, they'll still be required to follow the laws that protect clean air, clean land, clean water. And, in fact, on things like uh, you look at wetlands, they have they will ultimately have a higher level of responsibility for mitigation for replacing wetlands uh, than they would under current laws. So current laws, uh, 1.3 to 1, this law for them will require 2 to 1 match. And uh, so it's, it's a good deal all the way around. It just speeds the process up.
Governor, when do you anticipate the announcement as to the precise location of where the plant is going to be? Oh, I think you're going to see that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, for them, they wanted to get through the legislative process. We'll have a contract uh, by the beginning of October, and I think the timeline is going to be between now and then in terms of when they uh, announce the Pacific site. Uh, but obviously, uh, you know, that we early on we looked at both Kenosha and Racine counties as sites, and the reason they didn't with the announcement of picking the state of Wisconsin was they liked Wisconsin, they liked the sites that they had here. They wanted to try and keep the uh, the price of land down to a reasonable level, which I think anyone who's bought land before can appreciate. And uh, now that the law will be in effect as of today, and the contract will be signed beginning of October, uh, this is the right time for things to be announced. Do you think the personal relationship you developed with the, the people at Foxconn, particularly the at the highest echelon, do you think that ha, ha, does that give you a more of a comfort level? Because some of the naysayers are there saying, "Well, look, look at Foxconn, and look what happened in Pennsylvania, or this, there, or the other thing." I get the sense that you feel very comfortable with the people you have been dealing with at Foxconn. Oh, I do, and and you know, it's interesting the people bring that out up are apparently people who, who are rooting against success for the people of the state of Wisconsin. I, I'm rooting for success. I'm optimistic. I actually think Foxconn will not only meet, I think they'll exceed the expectations. And I just want to make sure that we're doing everything in our power, not only to provide the workforce they need to fill those 13,000 direct good-paying jobs, jobs, remember, that pay on average $53,875 a year plus benefits, but I want to make sure that we take it a step further, not only that we help them fill their workforce needs for these good-paying, family-supporting jobs, but that we don't miss a beat, we don't miss a step for any of our other employers. And so over the next several years, thankfully with this budget, I'll be signing this uh, in a few days this week as well, it really puts, and it, and it had it planned far before Foxconn, but it only helps even more to put more and more and more into workforce development, worker training, education, to make sure that every employer, whether it's 13,000 jobs or 13 jobs or 130 jobs or whatever the job number might be, that every employer in the state gets the kind of cooperation they need to build a strong workforce. As long as you brought up the budget, Governor, <laughs> uh, you know, over two months overdue, but are you satisfied with the package that's now coming to your desk? Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the best budgets the state has ever had. Think about it. We're both cutting taxes and investing in our schools. We're able to put more money in the schools than ever before, more actual dollars in the K-12 through education. At the same time, we're able to cut taxes. In fact, property taxes, as I predicted, will be lower in December of 2018 on a medium value at home than they were in December of 2014, and that means they'll be lower than they were the December before we started in 2010. We're, in fact, eliminating an entire tax, the state tax, on, uh, on your property tax bill for the first time since 1931 will no longer be there. And so we're able to provide property tax relief, overall tax relief, still invest in our schools, still make major investments in our budget, all because our reform dividend, the reforms that we've enacted over the past six and a half years are working. They're working, which is part of the reason why Foxconn is here, and they're working, which is why we're able to balance the budget while cutting taxes and still investing in things like our schools and our workforce. When do you anticipate groundbreaking for the Foxconn facility? Well, I think the overall, uh, the, the, the mega groundbreaking for the whole uh, ecosystem will be this spring. They're going to start work on other elements uh, of that even sooner. 
they don't waste any time. They want to be up and operational by 2020, so they're going to have full construction going early next year in 2018. And, of course, one of the things gets gets lost in the discussion is, is that construction, they're going to be hiring Wisconsin companies. They're going to be hiring Wisconsin workers, as well as people probably from all over the country. But there's going to be a lot of people here. There's going to be an immediate economic boom boom to this area before Foxconn even opens up, right? Unbelievably so. 10,000 construction workers. I was holding a session on this a couple weeks ago in La Crosse, and a, a company, Hoffman Construction, came down from Black River Falls, so in the northwest part of the state of Wisconsin. They were there to support this because they said this is by far the biggest project they've ever potentially been involved with. And so they recognized that just to move, you know, they're very much involved in, in moving ground, and whether it's in uh, road building or other construction projects, they see this as a boom. They see this as uh, years of uh, full employment for the people at their uh, their site up in Black River Falls. And so this is one of the things that I, I've said all along. I believe that uh, that this Wisconsin Valley project will be become more popular every day that goes by after we sign the bill today because every time people hear of another construction company all over the state, every time um, somebody hears of another supplier, because remember, $1.4 billion of supply chain just in the state of Wisconsin alone each year once it's operational. So that, that in comparison, Oshkosh Corporation spends about $300 million a year on supply chain uh, with small and mid-sized companies in the state. This is more than four times that. So every time people hear about supply chain contracts, every time they hear about construction contracts, people are going to realize what a big deal this is and how if they're not directly benefiting their neighbor, their families, others in their community will be benefiting all over the state of Wisconsin. Okay, Foxconn deal is done. The state budget is done. When we've talked over the last several months, you've said you're going to withhold any announcements about your political future until, again, the budget's done. That's now happened. We, are we going to hear from you about re-election uh, in the next couple weeks or so? Yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously the worst kept secret that I'm interested in sticking around for a while to, to see all these good things through to keep us on the right path. I want a few weeks to keep stressing all the different parts, you know, because all throughout the summer, attention was on the few little differences between the assembly and the senate there's a lot of really big important things beyond just property tax relief and school aids in this budget we want to talk about over the next several weeks but i think a good time to look at making an official announcement is probably the first week in november november 6th would be a year out from the election and november 2nd is my birthday so sometime (laughs) between those dates I would imagine it would be a good time to make an announcement about election. Well, Governor Walker, welcome back from Korea. Um, big announcement this afternoon. I know it's something you've worked very, very hard for. Thanks for joining us, and you have yourself a great day, sir. Thanks, Jeff. You have a great one. Okay, Bye-bye. take care. That's Governor Scott Walker back from Korea. Um, it is it is amazing when you think about how quickly you know th- this shows – that for everybody who thinks government is dysfunctional, and and I understand there's some people who think that Foxconn is going to be awful. I think with all due respect, you're wrong. But, I mean, here you have a deal that was announced July 26th, I think is the date it was announced, and here we are September 18th. So you're talking about less than two months, and you have this major project which is going to be signed into law, and it's going to start proceeding, and people are going to start going to work. And I understand, like the governor's talking about, there's some naysayers who apparently want to see it fail I think they are going to be disappointed. So thanks to the governor for joining us. It's 922. This is Jeff Wagner. 
935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. From the Big Dog to the Greek Freak and from Marquette to March Madness, we're showcasing some of the greatest games and moments in BMO Harris Bradley Center history. Check out the photo gallery up now in the Bucks section of WTMJ.com. Hey, before I forget, I, I do want to mention this. I went to the, um, went to the Brewers game Saturday night, um, and That was the one loser game of the three. But I want to tell you, I had the best time, and and I just want to take my hat off to the Brewers. Of course, everybody knows the story. The Florida Marlins, the games between the Brewers and the Marlins were supposed to be played in Miami because of the effect of um, the hurricane, uh, the not necessarily damage to the stadium, but they were concerned that the fire and police people, for example, had more important things to do than you know, staff a baseball game. So the game was moved here to Milwaukee on very short notice. First game was Friday night. They moved here on Wednesday. And what happened is the Brewers made arrangements to, to sell seats. And so what they did on all three games, they ended up selling the first two levels of the stadium. For example, on Saturday night, and and we we got these seats because my my buddy went online and was able to get them. We were right home behind home plate, like thirteenth row. They were great seats. They were fifteen dollar tickets. I mean, and, and what was so cool? So we went on Saturday night, and the first level was packed. The second level was packed, and in many cases, there were people sitting there who you know, big baseball fans. But but typically, I mean, let's face it, they wouldn't be in a position to drop fifty, sixty, seventy dollars, you know, per person for these different seats. So this was an opportunity for them to sit in seats that maybe, you know, they they wouldn't get the chance to sit in every day. And I will tell you, even a losing game on Saturday night, people were into it. There were fans. There were a lot of young people, younger people with kids. Um, taking advantage of this great opportunity, and everybody had a, a great time. The Brewers really pulled this off. The other thing that they did, BD, who's producing the show that I didn't know they were going to do, they, they had all the food and all the stuff, all the drinks were discounted 20%. You know, it, it was a you'd, you'd walk in and and beers that they're normally charging like seven bucks for were five fifty. I mean, the brats that were normally like six bucks were four fifty, and and it was just uh, hot dogs even less. The brewers went out of their way to make it an incredibly fan friendly experience. And I, I think everybody just really appreciated it, and it was just a great crowd the night I was there. I think people that went Friday night and Sunday had a great time as well. So I, I didn't, I just didn't want to forget about that. I didn't want to let the show end without just taking my hat off to the Milwaukee Brewers and, and to all the Brewers fans for turning out. I mean, all three games, the, all the tickets. I mean, I think they had the announced attendance the night I was there was 25,000 and some, which was essentially all the tickets they had to sell. It was just, it was a great weekend. It was a lot of fun. And I think uh, a lot of people got a chance to take advantage and maybe sit in some seats that they would not otherwise sit in. But the Brewers just did a great job. All right. We start off the 930 segment of the program, the way we start off every program, with three big things. Not necessarily the most earth-shattering things. I know President Trump, by the way, is speaking to the United Nations tomorrow. Um, Speech is scheduled to start a little bit after 9 o'clock. We will carry it, and then we will comment on it afterwards. But uh, things that I think are kind of interesting or things I think you need to know about or to discuss at the water cooler. Um, President Trump, back in the news, because of his... Tweets. Um, BD, who's producing the show, everybody knows what a GIF is. Um, it, it's G-I-F. Um, 
it, it, they've been around for like 30 years. These are the these are like the animated things that you can kind of if if you if you see like somebody sends you something and it's the, like the dancing babies. That that's a gif. People can go in and you can you can take these things and you can create them if you are so inspired. You can put stuff together. You can animate it. Um, if you see, I was just watching one where you've got this raccoon that comes and steals the dog's food or the cat's food or whatever, and there's a commentary. Those things are GIFs. They've, they've been around, GIFs. Um, they, they've been around for like 30 years, but with the popularity of the, in, with the internet taking off since Al Gore invented it, um, it's getting a lot more traction. All right, so here, here's the deal. President Trump, now he is the President of the United States, is apparently uh, amused by this particular GIF, and he decides to retweet it. Now, again, if you want to see this, you can text the word golf uh, to 414-799-1620. The, the GIF is only like five seconds long, but it, here, here's what it, it shows. It shows President Trump at one of his golf courses teeing off. So he swings the golf club, he hits the ball, the ball goes flying, all right? It then cuts to a scene that goes back to 2011. This is back when Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State, and you might you might remember this. She she slipped as she was getting on an airplane. I believe it was in Yemen. So so you got the first clip shows President Trump hitting a golf ball, and then it it shows Hillary Clinton walking up the steps on this airplane, and she slips and she falls. Well, the, the person that put together the GIF takes an animated golf ball, and in the scene, so you see Trump hitting a golf ball, then it cuts to Hillary Clinton slipping. That what they do is they um, interpose a golf ball, and it like shows the golf ball. As Hillary Clinton is starting to go down, the golf ball hits her in the back. So it makes it look like President Trump has hit her with the golf ball. That That's that's the GIF, and, and she goes down. So he, he he tweets this out. And the outrage is palpable. Let me share with you, for example, something that appeared in the Chicago Tribune today. Every woman in Congress should refuse to work with President Donald Trump until he apologizes for retreating a GIF that shows him hitting Hillary Clinton in the back with a golf ball. Enough. Beyond enough. Violence against women is a global epidemic. It's never funny. Violence against a two-term United States senator, highly regarded secretary of state, former first lady, another one and grandmother of two, mother of one and grandmother of two, shared by the president of the United States for giggles, is insulting. It shouldn't be brushed off as the latest shenanigans from a Twitter-happy good old boy. It should be the last straw. 105 women serve in the United States Congress, 21 in the Senate, 84 in the House. Every one of them, regardless of party, should sign a statement condemning Trump's repulsive tweet and pledging to freeze him out until he acknowledges its toxicity. I, it could go something like this. We, the women representing all Americans, unanimously condemn President Trump's reprehensible tweet showing Hillary Clinton's likeness being hit with a golf ball. Many have served alongside Senator Clinton. Additional, additional. Additionally, we refuse to sit in silence while the President of the United States makes light of violence against women. The World Health Organization estimates one in three women worldwide experiences physical and or sexual violence in her lifetime. Um, and then the article continues. 
Um, if they want to measure public support for such a move, they can put up a statement on change.org and ask for signatures. Um, more than three million people showed up across America for January's women's marches. I think they'd get a few signatures starting with mine. All right. So there is this outrage about the GIF. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Here, here is what I want to talk with you about. That I, I think that there are two issues. First, you know, it is the president of the United States. Doesn't the president, is, is this childish and is this immature? And would you think that the leader of the free world would have more important things to do than necessarily retweeting these things? This is issue number one. Issue number two, though, is was this really that this outrageous slap at women? Was this an endorsement of violence towards women, or does that sort of show that regardless of whether or not, you know, President Trump, whether or not this is sort of locker room stuff, um, for, for people who see this as endorsing violence towards women, do they desperately need to get a sense of humor? Was this appalling? Was this reprehensible? Was this insulting? Or do the people who are upset about this irrespective of whether or not Donald Trump should be sending it out, to the people who see this as an endorsement of violence against women, are they overreacting? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. I'll obviously tell you where I come down on this as well. But what do you think about this, Jeff? Is this is this violence towards women, or is this people who need to just kind of lighten up a little bit? 944, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 948, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, let's go to our text line. I don't support abuse of any kind, but come on, let's not be snowflakes. Be careful there, texter. Snowflakes do not like to be called snowflakes. They get offended easily. Okay, um, let's see. Here's another one of the texts. Imagine if Obama was shown throwing an opening day pitch and having the ball hit Romney or George W. in the back. You would be livid. Oh, the hypocrisy. No, I wouldn't be livid because... I have a sense of humor. I do. I have a sense of humor. I understand. That's why when, for example, President Ford used to, who actually was probably one of the best athletes ever in the White House, you know, he, he slipped a couple times, and they used to show it over and over again. Was I offended? No, that that's that was it. And, you know, President Bush, when he slipped once coming off of one of the planes, I remember them showing that over and over again. I mean, look, I, I think you can make a very strong argument that the leader of the free world should have more important things to do with his time than retweeting. The, these these gifs or these silly things okay i i get that and i don't disagree but this outrage oh this shows he's insensitive to women because he's done this all right get a sense of humor for goodness sakes brian in brookfield brian you're on 620 wtmj brian yeah. hello hi brian uh, you know what uh, jeff i'm just amazed how i can hear so many things coming out of left side you know and uh you know it's lost in the shuffle immediately. You know, now this will be lost tomorrow, I'll say that. But normally, with the right, they're pounding down useless information. They're always anti-Trump. You know, why? Because he, you know, like a, acts like a normal man and says stuff that uh, pisses people off because, what, they're perfect in every way or what? Well, I mean, I guess it's, look, I mean, look, he, he's the leader of the free world, okay? I, I mean, and, and I think a, a lot of, I mean, I, I'm not going to condone and I'm not going to defend the, the language that he's used in the past. But at the same time, 
I get it. it, it I, is this presidential? No, it's not. But there's a lot of stuff he does that isn't presidential. Um, I think that President Trump would be a lot better off if people like took away the phone and stopped him from doing these type of things. But at, at the same time, this oh, this shows that he's in favor of wife beating or or the the outrage. No, he obviously, to the extent he looked at it, he thought it was kind of clever. All right, maybe maybe you don't agree with this, but this outrage. Oh, this is promoting people, you know, beating their wives. No. No, it, it's not. It, at least, I, I think for most rational people, they're not going to look at this and say, oh, my gosh, you know, that means he's condoning, you know, hitting, throwing objects at, at women or things like that. No, I think most people are going to look at that, and depending on where you are politically, you're either going to go, oh, my gosh, I'm appalled, or, oh, that's, that's or you're going to smile at it. I Again, I would like him to stay away from this type of stuff because I think it diminishes him. But this idea that this is an endorsement of violence against women is, at least in my opinion, so incredibly, incredibly over the top. Let's talk to Freddie in Milwaukee. Freddie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Thanks for taking my call, sure. Jim. Yeah, it's similar to what you say as my comment. is. It, I know if I was president of the United States right today, I would not have the time to sit around and play with a telephone. Yeah, I, it, right, I, right, it, and I don't know what time he's, I have to look and see what time he sent this out. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm right. If you're the leader of the free world, and I agree, I think that is a legitimate criticism. What the heck are you doing sending this I, th- video of dancing cats out or whatever? I, yeah. I mean, I would, be, I would be 24 hours a day somehow trying to figure out who I could talk to to ally myself against what's going on in North Korea. Yeah. Oh, abs- right. A- absolutely. You have all these different issues that are out there, and, and apparently, just like the dancing cat video, this one catches his attention. And I think, Freddie, that is a very thanks to call. That is a very, very fair criticism. And if that was the criticism he was getting, my gosh, don't you have better things to do with yourself? I would agree entirely. But that's not. I mean, this is being portrayed as, oh, this shows how he is a supporter of wife beating. And he's insane. Every woman in Congress should refuse to work with him and freeze him out because this shows that he, you know, endorses violence towards women. At which point in time you say, huh? All right, let's see. Text line. It seems to me that this isn't that hard. Not acceptable for the president to share a bullying tweet like that. We've heard of sore losers, but he's sure acting like a sore winner. Um, pretty clear that he isn't an all-women issue either. Forcing this to become one of the kind kind of cheapens the argument for treating women fairly. In my opinion, the real controversy is whether or not Jif should have a hard G. Um, Andrew text. This probably wasn't a good idea on Trump's part, but I'm kind of annoyed that presidents are constantly ripped for little stuff like this. The general population of America is more vulgar and inappropriate than any of the things the politicians lose their career over. Let's see. Robbie text. The lack of sense of humor in today's world is the reason comedians like Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock no longer do college campuses. You see, that's that that's that is the issue here. I mean, again, I, I look at this and I think, all right, I don't even know that I'd say this is in poor taste. I mean, I just think it is childish for the president of the United States to send this out. I don't think, though, that this is construed as an endorsement of violence towards women. I am sympathetic to this argument about kind of the sore loser thing. I 
I'd let Hillary Clinton go. Hillary Clinton is yesterday's news. I understand that she's out there on this book tour. The book tour isn't even getting a lot. I mean, she's getting a lot of criticism for that because she's blaming everybody but herself for her loss. Hillary Clinton is yesterday's news. If I was President Trump, I would just remove those two words, Hillary Clinton, from my vocabulary and move on because he's won. But at the same time, if you want to criticize Donald Trump, fine. If you want to say he's childish, that's fine. If you want to say he doesn't act in a presidential fashion, that's fine. But if the evidence is this shows how he feels about women in general, I think you're way, 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 way over the top. Big thing number two is coming up. Should they have chased? I'll tell you the story. It's 9.54. It's 9.57. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. Coming up in about 20 minutes, as long as we're talking about outrage from the left, the single dumbest tweet, perhaps, well, perhaps ever. I'm going to share the story with you, and then we're going to get your reaction. That's coming up in about 20 minutes. Right now, it's three big things. Big thing number two, late Friday evening, Anissa Wire, who is, of course, one of the two young women involved in the Slender Man case, um, a jury, 10 to 2, decides that she is not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. Jury finds her that uh, finds that at the time she committed the crime, um, along with her partner, Morgan Geyser, um, she suffered from a mental disorder that prevented her from knowing her conduct was wrong and or from conforming her actions to the law. All right. Jury saw this case. But I have to tell you something. Um, The family of the girl who was attacked, uh, they were just kind of shaking their head at this. I've always said that you can find, when it comes to the law, you can find experts who will say just about anything. And that's what you had, at least in my opinion. You had three you know, psychiatrists or psychologists who all came out with this sort of theory that I, I don't know that they'd ever applied in a situation where you had friends. And she said, well, essentially she was just under the influence of her friend and unable to conform her conduct to the requirements of the law. It's one of those where you just kind of shake your head, and I I understand we have a court system. I believe the court system works more often than not. Occasionally, though, the court system doesn't work. And with all due respect to everybody involved in this particular prosecution, the the idea that this young lady, and here's what happened. I mean, I, I, I think the jury is obviously sympathetic to the fact that, oh, you know, she's a teenager now, and, you know, we're, we're afraid that she might be locked up for a lengthy period of time. So instead, instead, three more years of treatment and then perhaps back out on the street, I, I think that sympathy factor, as much as anything else, was playing here. And it's good to be sympathetic, but at the same time, there needs to be accountability. With all due respect, I have a lot of trouble believing justice was done. And that's big story number two. Big story number three, is it ever okay to chase? And should authorities have chased early Sunday morning? We'll talk about that next. It's 10 o'clock. It's 10.08, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTNJ, TMJ, coming up in about 15 minutes. Perhaps the most silly tweet in a long time, we're going to discuss that, but we're at big thing number three. Should they have chased? Here is the story. Um, 
Sunday morning, 3 a.m., so we're talking Saturday night, Sunday morning. According to the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office, it all began around 3 a.m. on Sunday morning when a sheriff's deputy saw a vehicle driving unsafely in lanes of traffic on I-94 heading westbound between General Mitchell Boulevard and Hawley Road. The driver, a 24-year-old Madison man, did not stop ignoring the deputy's lights and siren. Apparently, he's thinking he used to be driving in the city of Milwaukee. Um, So he's driving erratically. The cops try to pull him over. He takes off. They don't let him just drive away. The deputy begins a pursuit, calling for assistance from the Waukesha County Sheriff's Department and Brookfield Police Department as they approach the county line. The deputy requested, requested placements of stop sticks on the freeway. The driver, turns out again, it's a 24-year-old guy from Madison. I'll tell you more about him in just a minute. Um, exited the freeway at Moreland Road, re-entered again on the Moreland Road on-ramp. Waukesha County Sheriff's deputies set up stop, stop sticks east of Barker Road, which the driver struck along with a pursuing deputy's squad. The suspect vehicle spun and struck the wall, but then began driving the wrong way on I-94, heading eastbound in the westbound lanes, according to officials. Sheriff's officials said the driver crossed over to the eastbound lanes at Calhoun Road, exited the freeway at Moreland Road before entering um, uh, the lot at the... um, at one of the hotels out there. His, the vehicle then rammed a Waukesha County's deputy squad in the parking lot, causing severe damage to the squad. The man then fled on foot. A deputy called into his location. Another deputy joined the foot, foot pursuit and tackled the guy. Sheriff's officials said he continued to resist arrest. They had to deploy their taser to gain control of him. The pursuit covered just over nine miles and lasted 11 minutes. Thankfully, nobody was seriously injured. The guy who was involved in this, his name is Stephen Dixon. He is 24 years old. He's apparently now been charged or will be charged with second offense operating while intoxicated, operating while revoked, felony fleeing from an officer, resisting or obstructing obstructing an officer, second degree endangering safety. Sheriff's officials noted the man is currently on probation for fraud, disorderly conduct, resisting, obstructing an officer, possession of cocaine, and possession with intent to deliver. That's a hell of a lot to be on probation for. And now he's 24 years old and he's driving in this particular fashion. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this happened at 3 a.m. And the deputies made the decision that they were going to try to chase this guy instead of simply letting him drive off at a high rate of speed or erratically into the good night. Now, once he started to be chased, he tried to avoid them. You heard all the reckless driving that was involved going down the freeway on the wrong way. They tried to deploy stop sticks to stop him. That apparently didn't work. Ultimately, he ended up ramming cars. Bad things could have happened. There's no question about it. Now, thankfully, the worst thing that happened is this loser ended up getting hit with a taser and a couple of the squad cars got got damaged. But this does, I think, emphasize the potential problems that you have when people chase. So the question becomes, was this worth it? 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And my answer is, is yes. You know, the, the fact that this guy was driving erratically, 
the fact that you know presumably he's intoxicated i you know i guess that'll all kind of sort out at the at the end but you know he's presumably drunk he doesn't have a driver's license he's on probation for a whole series of other situations and he is willing to drive in this reckless fashion that tells me that this guy was a menace and and yes Yes, there was an element of danger by trying to pull him over. But you know what? You let him drive off into the good night at 3 o'clock in the morning, and what are the chances that you find him six or seven miles down the road after he's driven into somebody else's car, the person that's standing by the side of the road um, changing the tire, the person that's driving you know, uh, to work at 3 o'clock in the morning? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should the authorities have chased... My answer is is yes, and, and I understand maybe maybe you change the facts around a little bit, and, and maybe you make this three o'clock in the afternoon instead of three o'clock in the morning, and, and maybe you have to rethink it. But I'm telling you, three o'clock in the morning, somebody behaving like this, I want him off the streets. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty is the number. We discuss next. It's ten fourteen. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1016, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Less than two weeks left in the season, and the hunt for Brew October finds the crew in Pittsburgh for the final series of the year against the Pirates. Jeff and Lane are live from PNC Park, beginning at 530 tonight, right here on WTMJ. Actually, Matt Pauley, who was filling in for Doug Russell, is on vacation this week. Uh, Matt made a really good point. Um, Pittsburgh, which is having a down year, They've had the Brewers' number. The uh, the Brewers are one and five in Pittsburgh this year, um, including remember that that four game sweep not that long ago. If the Brewers don't end up making the playoffs, I think you're going to look back and you're going to say, okay, those four games they lost in Pittsburgh and the three games they lost in Cincinnati. Brewers just, I mean, good teams, playoff teams. The, it's so funny if you look at the numbers. The Brewers play the good teams as well as almost any team in the league. The problem is they go on these losing streaks to the bad teams, and that's that's not the recipe for making the playoffs. Now I'm, I tell you, I'm. I live and die with every pitch right now, so hopefully they're going to be able to um, turn this around. And it starts with beating three, winning at least two out of three, maybe all three in Pittsburgh. All right, 414-799-1620 is the number. Big story number three, high-speed chase late last Saturday night um, involving authorities in Milwaukee County and in Brookfield. Guy driving erratically um, by essentially Holly Road on I-94. He takes off. The police try to pull him over. He continues to run. He ends up getting back on the freeway, going the wrong way, gets off, ultimately has to flee from the cops. And what they end up doing is they end up you know, hitting him with a taser. Um, I, I think this is one of those situations that, in my mind, demonstrates you know, quite clearly why you can't let people just drive off into the good night. Let's see. Lisa in Wind Lake sends me a text. Pursuing that time of night might not be as dangerous as it could have been at any other time. It is noteworthy that with all those offenses, he was on probation. Madison judges seem to have the same problem as Milwaukee judges do. Um, yes. Another text. Absolutely work it, worth it. Keep those people off the road. Rich and Bayview text. Absolutely they should have chased him. His behavior demonstrated exactly why society needs him off the street. And to which I say to all those things, amen. See, here's the deal, and here's what the problem was with Ed Flynn's previous chase policy. You don't know why frequently it is that people decide to run. 
All you know is that they decide to run. And if you unfairly tie officers' hands saying, well, you have to believe that they have probable cause to believe that the person was involved in a violent felony, well, you end up never chasing at all, and you allow dangerous people to just drive off. Now, I get that there is always a risk when you let people do it, but there is a risk in just letting them drive off as well, including the fact that five miles down the road they might hit and kill somebody, or if they just drive off, you know darn well that the next night they're going to be out there doing the same thing again. You've got to get these people off the street. Now it's going to be interesting to see. My guess is he's going to be charged in Waukesha County. I have a feeling that the judges in Waukesha County, just saying, are going to be less sympathetic to this dangerous loser than the judges in Dane County were. Just saying. It is 1020 when we come back. It might be the single most stupid tweet ever sent by a liberal columnist. But we're going to discuss. Stick around. It's 1020. It's 1022. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay. BD, who's producing the show today. What was your first job? What was the first thing when you were a kid that you did to make money? Do you remember? Oh, you worked at a pizza place. Did you do something? Did you do anything before that? For example, did you? Oh, so, so you never like went around and shoveled snow or cut lawns or things like that? Okay. Okay, he says he did not. All right. For many, many people, one of the first things that you do as a kid, where you first make money, I mean, I remember I I, I used to, I would cut lawns, um, and I also I used to shovel snow in the neighborhood. Okay, so, I mean, I can remember doing that at a 10, 11, 12, you know, one of those things. Hey, it snows, you go over to the people next door, you need somebody to shovel your walk, you, you do that. I mean, that's something that kids often do, and I... I think it's a good thing that, that kids do that. Now, you might remember this story. Um, August, it, it, it happened about a month and a half ago, and it was one of, during one of these news conferences. The um, White House press secretary uh, at the time was uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You know, she's getting all these questions, and she stops, and she reads a letter that a 10-year-old kid, I think you pronounce his name, uh, Gaccio, G-I-A-C-C-I-O, Frank Gaccio, 10-year-old from Falls Church, Virginia, had sent to President Trump. He says, I want to mow the White House lawn. Even though I'm only 10, I'd like to show the nation what young people like me are ready for. I admire your background in business, and I've started my, my own. So he sends him this note saying, I'd like to come and, and mow the White House lawn. Don't remember, remember the story. Well, what happens is, on Friday, they, they invited him to the White House. So he and his dad come to the White House, and what they do is the kid, he's 10 years old, now he's 11, but he was 10 when they wrote the letter. He, he's got his own little lawn-cutting business in, in his neighborhood in Falls Church, Virginia. He goes around, he cuts lawns. He's 11 years old. And so what happens is on Friday, he, they, they invite him and his father to the White House, and he puts on safety goggles and earplugs and gardening gloves, and he starts cutting the White House lawn. All right, and there's people there, and apparently the, the kid didn't know that the president was, was there. So he started cutting the lawn, and then the, the photo op, and I get it's a photo op, that the president comes, you know, walking over while the kid is cutting the lawn and, and surprises him. Um, you know, the president says, hey, this is the real future of the country right here. You know, we're, we're lucky. Maybe he's going to be president someday. And, you know, so he, he's, again, he's not cutting the whole thing. It's but he, he's getting a chance to, to do this. Now, most people, I think, would interpret this as a feel-good kind of moment. 
All right. The kid wanted to he's got his own lawn cutting business. He's sort of an entrepreneur. He wanted to come cut the White House lawn and they invited him to do it. Right. You, you hear that. and You say, oh, that that's kind of cool. Right. Unless you are a very liberal reporter um, who writes for the New York Times. OK, so so this is the image there. The, the kid is out there cutting lawn. He's got the safety helmet. He's got the glasses. The president is looking at him do this. A former New York Times labor reporter who still who works for the Times for 31 years and still writes for the paper on occasion. The guy, his name is Stephen Greenhouse, sees this and he decides to take to Twitter. Now, does he see this as this feel-good story? Oh, you have this young kid who's making money for lawns. Oh, this is great. No. Here's what he goes and puts out on Twitter. This is the, the reporter. Not sending a great signal on child labor, minimum wage, and occupational safety. Trump White House lets a 10-year-old volunteer mow its lawn. So you got the 10-year-old kid who asked to cut the lawn. They set it up. He comes out there. He's doing this. And this guy says, not sending a great signal on child labor, minimum wage, and occupational safety. Trump White House lets a 10-year-old volunteer mow its lawn. All right. The Daily Wire website says this tweet might be the dumbest tweet ever posted on Twitter. Bill Crystal says the sanctimonious and humorless finger wagging of nanny state progressive progressivism in one tweet. And then, of course, the guy doesn't back down. This greenhouse says um, and he doesn't back down at all. He says, look, what the kid wants to do is noble. But sorry, I'm mindful of problems. I've written lots about child labor and kids being hurt by machinery. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So you have the kid who's got his own lawn cutting business. He's 11 years old. You know, um, he sends a letter to the White House. The White House invites him out to do it. And you have at least one of these guys who, again, used to write a lot for the New York Times, who is appalled by this. You've got an 11-year-old kid that's out there mowing the lawn. What about child safety? What about, um, you know, child labor? Um, th- this kid, he, he's, he's, I, don't you know that kids get hurt by machinery? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. I, may, maybe this is what passes for, for, for the society in 2017. But did, don't a lot of people, you know, start off by, by cutting lawns at 10 and 11 and 12 years old? Don't you, you know, parents, don't you have your, your kids go out? Isn't that one of the ways that the kids, you know, I mean, start to learn some responsibility? Even if they're not starting their own business, isn't that one of the chores that oftentimes kids get right around that age? All right. Is this one of the most stupid tweets ever? Or is this, again, Donald Trump showing his insensitivity to child labor and things of the lot? For like 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I, I will tell you, I side with Bill Crystal on this one. This, this tweet, and I understand it's saying a lot, this might be one of the, this might be the dumbest tweet ever sent out. That, oh my gosh, you've got this kid that's cutting lawns. Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeff. Uh, I learned a long time ago, I was a kid. I was like 10 or 11 years old, and a neighbor next to me uh, needed his lawn cut, you know. So I cut his lawn voluntarily, and uh, he asked me if I wanted any money for it. And I go, no, that's okay. Uh, I just want to do it for a favor for you. And he goes, you're dumb for not asking for any money. (laughs) 
And I said, well, I'm sorry, you know, so I learned a lesson from them. If I want to do something for somebody voluntarily, I'll do it voluntarily. But if they want to pay me, fine. If they don't want to pay me, that's okay. But, uh... Well, yeah, but, but you're tenu- right. You, you don't feel like you don't feel like you were being exploited by the fact that you're ten years old and you're going out and cutting lawn. No, I actually wanted to do it for a favor, right. and uh, I didn't feel exploited at all. And I think that this is just that stupid. It is. Well, think, I mean, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, one of my one of the things that that I had an allowance, but one of the things my parents expected me to do is um, I was supposed to cut the lawn. And, I mean, I I can remember right around this age. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I, we moved here when I was about 10. And, I mean, I can remember, you know, we, we had a big lawn in Glendale, and that was one of my assignments. Yes, and there was a power lawnmower. And my father showed me how to put gasoline in the power lawnmower. And my father showed me how to start the lawnmower. And you know what? I, I would go out and I would cut the lawn, including, like, these ditches we had and stuff like that. And I guess I never felt like I was exploited. I never felt like I was violating child labor standards. It was just I was cutting the lawn. But again, you have one of these progressive, knows better than all the rest of us reporters who's outraged. We continue the conversation for one more segment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1035, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, if you're just tuning in, here's the story we're talking about. Early August, this then 10-year-old kid who's got his own little lawn-cutting business in Falls Church, Virginia, sends the president a letter saying, hey, I, I've run this, my, I've got my own little business here. I'd like to come cut the White House lawn. And the press secretary read it. Well, what they did is they invited the kid last Friday to come out and cut some of the White House lawn and also get a tour of the White House. So he's there with his father, and he's got his lawnmower, and he's got, like, his safety glasses and his um, little hat on, and he's got his gloves, and he's starting to cut the lawn. And then President Trump comes over, and he didn't know that the president was going to be there. President Trump comes over and talks to the kid for a little bit and says, hey, this kid be next president of the United States. Okay. Now, I understand it's a photo op. I, I get that. But it's kind of a feel-good photo op, right? Well, here you have this humorless twit. The guy's name is Stephen Greenhouse, who has worked for the New York Times for 31 years. Um, he, he's covered labor issues. He sends out – this is his tweet. So you got this 11-year-old kid who's having the time of his life. He's at the White House doing what he has to do. And this is what this twit sends um, out on Twitter. Not sending a great signal on child labor, minimum wage, and occupational safety. Trump White House lets a 10-year-old volunteer mow its lawn. Well, then when he gets called out for it, he doubles down. What this kid wants to do is noble, but sorry, I'm mindful of problems. I've written a lot about child labor and kids being hurt by machinery. All right, I mean, you want to talk about clueless. How many how many 10- and 11-year-olds, I mean, end up like cutting grass as part of what they have to do to, you know, as part of their chores? I think this should be rewarded. It is this kind of sanctimonious piety and cluelessness which makes so many of us roll our eyes. Allie in Milton. Allie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. So I actually got in on that little twi- Twitter thread yesterday. <laughs> okay. Um, it was laugh out loud. I actually thought that it was a joke, but he did double down. Um, but other, other um, he has Trump derangement syndrome, clearly. Right. Um, he's unhinged. Um, well, I mean, I just have all the things to see. I mean, here here you have this 11-year-old kid who just, who decides, you know, he, he likes to cut lawns. And instead of saying, hey, this is inspiring and the president had him out there, it, it's like, oh, this is, this is in derogation of child labor and kids can get hurt by machinery and stuff. To me, it just demonstrates this fundamental cluelessness because my guess is, Allie, there's lots of people as part of their chores who are doing exactly this. 
I also, I believe work ethic is down. Um, yep. I've seen it in, um, in my own kids, sadly. And so good on this kid yeah. for having his own little lawn business. Yeah. He was wearing all protective gear. It was, he was supervised by the president of the United States and his own dad. And I believe, the lawns keeper at the White House. Sure. So this, this guy, um, he got the attention that he wanted. Um, but he, he also met with a lot of people who completely disagreed with him. Right. Yeah. He got, I mean, thanks to call Ali. I mean, he got the attention he wanted. If the attention you want is that, Hey, I'm going to send out what might be the stupidest tweet ever. And I understand, but see, but this is the larger point. This is one of the reasons I'm talking about it. This does, you're right. It represents the Trump derangement syndrome. Cause if this was Barack Obama, my guess is the tweet would, if this, if Barack Obama had done the same thing, my guess is the lefty reporter would not have said anything, but, but to the extent that he chooses to really believe this this shows the the genuine out of touch and clueless nature that you have some people from some people in the media no i understand yes you you have problems with child labor i i understand that yes you can have problems with kids getting hurt by dangerous machinery but we're, we're talking about a kid mowing a lawn for goodness sake something that i think most people end up doing on a regular basis Let's talk to Mike in Burlington. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hey, good morning, Jeff. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Okay, the kid's 11 years old. He's mowing a lawn. Oh, my gosh, how terrible, Mike. Yeah, well, we were uh, up at 444 in the morning out in the barn doing chores when the old man got us up when we were farming. And uh, <laughs> probably 12 years old. And I can remember the, the day that he thought I was old enough to drive a combine in the field because <laughs> i wasn't legal enough to have a driver's license of course so he could drive the trucks back and forth back from the field back to the farm and he put me in the combine and cut me loose and say <laughs> you know if anything breaks just shut it down and i'll be back in a little bit but you know the, the 16 hour days when you were 14 years old oh yeah years ago i'm 54 now we still get up at quarter to five every morning <laughs> my kids are the same way and they all are grown adults at this point, got good jobs and good educations under their belt. And you know what? It's early to bed and early to rise. Let's get at it, you know, and get it done. Well, you know, the thing is, too, but that's that work ethic you learned, you know, growing up on the farm. That, you know, okay, right. it's a family. Everybody's got to do this stuff. You know, everybody's got to contribute. So so here, you know, go milk the cows or go, you know, like you say, drive the combine or, or do whatever. Everybody's got to do what they can do. And, and when did that become a bad thing, I guess? Well, the, the earlier in life you can get them kids instilled with that idea, the better off you are. My wife is a second-grade teacher at one of the local schools, and, and she always tells her kids, you know what, this is your job when you're here. You know, we got to get at it. That's the way it is. So we're still farming, and and, <laughs> and my kids love the life, and, uh, you know, everything is good. So yeah, but no. everybody gets up in the morning and gets going. Right now, th- thanks for call. I mean, it, right, it's it's – it's hard work. I, I get that. And it's not necessarily for everybody. But but this idea that, gee, you know, we, we can't have we can't have kids cutting the lawns or delivering news. The guy worked for the New York Times. What about kids? I mean, that's the first job a lot of times, you know, delivering newspapers. Is that the same thing? Oh, they're out on the mean streets, whatever. I mean, come on. Joan in Colgate. Joan, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. I just want to say I love your show. Thank you. Boy. Good for Donald Trump. You know, I'm so tired of hearing him badmouth. But I just want to say, I have a, a little 11-year-old grandson, and he, he has a job with his neighbor cutting his grass. And he said to me the other day, he goes, Nana, I have $500 in the bank. And it's like, good for you, Kenny. I mean, <laughs> it's and I'm just 
so happy that my kids are teaching them some work work ethics instead of being out there getting in trouble well, and horsing around. Well, so, wait, wait, no, Joan, I got to stop you. I got, I got to ask you. So, your eleven-year-old grandson works. He cuts lawns, and he's got over five hundred dollars in the bank. I mean, don't, don't you, don't you care about child labor and minimum oh, wage and occupational safety well, and all those things? <laughs> Right, Jeff. I, I'm real worried about those kind of things. <laughs> I, no, it's just no. I'm thinking, but see, th- this is the cluelessness and the out of touch stuff that that you get. And again, like our last caller was saying too, they they, they double down on this. Well, h- how dare you question me? Don't don't you understand? I'm I'm a liberal and I'm a progressive and I've I've covered stuff involving like abuses of child labor. All right, well we're. We're not talking about 14-year-olds in, you know, India that are working 20 hours. We're talking about a kid who is out there cutting lawns. But the truth is there's some people, and again, I understand part of it is Trump derangement syndrome. I get all that. But the the larger part, part is this just, oh, my, my gosh, you know, you, you would actually, we're exploiting the kids. And, and don't you realize that bad stuff can happen with the lawnmowers? Well, yeah, I, I do. But at the same time, this guy must not realize that, People have been cutting grass with lawnmowers, including 10- and 11-year-olds, well, ever since there were lawnmowers and grass to be cut. And and you know what? It, again, it's maybe you want to just raise your kids and give them the allowance, and that that's fine if that's how you choose to do it. But, I mean, I think stories like this are feel-good stories. There's things we should, there are things that we should be applauding instead of, oh, this is just terrible, this is just awful. And the people that are appalled by this well, again, I know that they don't like to be called snowflakes because they find that offensive. But at the same time, um, these are snowflakes that you just kind of hope would like melt away. It is 1043. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up on the program. Uh, the Korean problem, what to do with North Korea. It's getting even messier. Canada is getting a rush of people seeking asylum. Illegal aliens are coming to Canada instead of the U.S. And you know what? Canada doesn't know what to do with them. And an amazing documentary about Vietnam, the first hour and a half, premiered yesterday. We're going to talk about the lessons of Vietnam and what it means for us in 2017, plus a lot more. Stick around. 1044, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1047, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, at least on this particular thing, it's nice to know I wasn't crazy. Remember when you had Hurricane Irma? that was bearing down on Florida, and you had all these different officials that were having press conferences. You know, And, and again, they were to advise people, and you had the governor was having a press conference that said, you know, get, get out, you know, we're, we're, we're mandatory evacuations and all these things. And on many of the different press conferences, they would have somebody who was acting, interpreting. It had the sign language, you know, it was standing there, so for people who might have been watching the thing that were deaf. And I was watching one of these press conferences, and I, I remember this distinctly um because this was in, in manatee county and um and and i was watching this and i remember they had there were people that were there and they were talking about people in low-lying shelters and flood zones and they had an interpreter and i was watching this and i swear to god i was i was looking at the interpreter and i thought i i, I know nothing about sign language but I don't think this guy knows anything about sign language either. I mean, it was just, it was like these weird facial expressions. And I mean, and I, I, I understand that you use facial expressions to try to communicate stuff, but this guy looked like he was all over the map. Well, here's this follow-up story on this. Sign language interpreter warned of pizza 
and Bear Monster at Irma at Irma Briefing. Um, for res- let's see, we we need you to be safe," said Robin D. Sabatino of the Board of County Commissioners at the September eighth briefing. She urged those in low-lying shelters and flood zones to seek higher ground and consider staying at shelters. But for residents who were deaf or hard of hearing, the message was quite different. Pizza, the interpreter appeared to sign. Then Bear Monster. <laughs> yeah, apparently, I mean, the person, um, the interpreter, they say, often appeared unsure of himself, paused frequently. His bright yellow shirt, which is a no-no for light-skinned signers who typically wear dark clothing to help their hands stand out, didn't help matters. Um, uh, it was atrocious, says this guy who was the chief executive of the National Association of the Deaf. Um, they're saying, look, I mean, we've reviewed this. He spelled the wrong words. He gesticulated uh, gibberish. These people who, who know this are looking at this stuff saying, we're, we're trying to you know, figure out what he was saying, and we had absolutely no clue at all. And, you know, we, we have no idea where they, they found him. They, the, the New York Times that had the story says, I was watching the interpreter and seeing him spelling and spelling and spelling and not fully signing. It was very hard to follow. I asked other people who were deaf if the hurricane actually headed straight for were heading straight for us. Nobody had any idea at all. So, I mean, look, I think this, I think this is a great thing. Obviously, and when you see the people you know who are, who are doing this to again make sure folks who are deaf or hard of hearing get the same information as everybody else does. But for the love of God, if you're going to do this, don't you have to at least find people who have some basis for knowing what's going on here? All right. Um, coming up in about 15 minutes, big deal with North Korea. Matter of fact, President Trump is going to be talking to the United Nations tomorrow morning. We will carry his speech live. It's supposed to occur. Eh, timing is a little flexible, but it's supposed to occur sometime after 9 o'clock our time, and then we will comment on it. Obviously, one of the issues that he's going to be concerning himself with is North Korea, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, plus an amazing documentary. Uh, the guy who did the Civil War documentary, and he's done baseball documentaries. You know, Ken Burns, um, he, he's got this documentary in Vietnam. I watched it last night, the first hour and a half. It, it runs for like 14, 15, 16 hours. First hour and a half was absolutely amazing. We're going to talk about that coming up in a little bit. But I, I want to be just a tad self-indulgent for, for just a moment. Um, when I grew up, I was a fan of pro wrestling. My late grandmother, to this day, to, to her dying day, she refused to believe the fact that pro wrestling was predetermined. You know, she she just, and she, oh, that's, that's, and, and she would, but I, I would say, I can't tell you how many hours I spent from when I was a little kid, you know, watching pro wrestling with, with my grandmother. And she was, she was just in, she was just into it. She was actually a very sweet woman, but she was just like into pro wrestling. So I, I, I came by, I, I came by my interest, um, Legitimately. So growing up here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I used to remember watching the shows. Can I see a show of hands like the old American Wrestling Association, the AWA with Vern Gagne and the Crusher and the Bruiser and Mad Dog Vachon and Dr. X and all these people? I, I, I used to watch it. Uh, a lot. And I'd actually sometimes I'd, I'd kind of go to the matches at the old Milwaukee Auditorium, now the Milwaukee Theater. I bring this up because over the weekend, one of the, the legendary characters, first of all in the American Wrestling Association, the AWA, and later on on, on TV as part of WWE, 
Bobby the Brain Heenan, one of arguably the greatest wrestling managers in history, um, passed away over the weekend um, after fighting cancer, uh, died at the age of, of 73. He was diagnosed with throat and tongue cancer in 2002, spent several years battling the disease, and, and ultimately passed away at the age of 17, at, at the age of 73. I can remember watching, watching, going to the matches and, and watching Bobby the Brain. They used to have all these different things. You know, he was he was the bad guy. You know, he was the manager of some of the the the, the heels, is what they call the bad guys. But I used to just, I I thought the guy was one of the most entertaining people around. I mean, if he had tried decided to channel his stuff into being like an actor instead of being a, a wrestling manager, I think he would have made a. I think he would have made just an absolute fortune. And I just, um, again, it's. It's interesting because a lot of these guys that were the pro wrestlers of my childhood, you don't you don't see a lot of pro wrestlers that live. Um, and I, they, a, a lot of them, a lot of them pass away way too soon. And I think part of it's because the strain that that business takes on your body. There's the whole issues with the road and things like that. But but Bobby the Brain, I think for a lot of us who grew up watching watching the AWA wrestling, he's just somebody that we we vividly remember. There used to. I remember going to this one match. They used to have him go around. They, they used to call him, like the Crusher used to call him the Weasel. It's Bobby the Weasel. And they used to have these, like, weasel suit matches where they'd, they'd put him in the sleeper hold, and then he'd pass out, and then they'd dress him in the weasel suit, and he'd get upset. I I remember that type of stuff. That that was entertainment, and Bobby the Brain Heenan passes away at the age of 73. Sail on and rest in peace. It's 1054. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1109. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. All right. Um, what do you do about the problem of North Korea? President Trump will be speaking to the United Nations tomorrow. Like I say, we will carry his speech live sometime after 9 o'clock our time. But the, the there are many, many problems facing the, the world. But North Korea has got to be at the top of the list. You have a rogue nation which is largely isolated by the rest of the world. The rogue nation is run by a, a dictator that I think by by normal standards you would say the guy, what would be the clinical term? Nuts. He's nuts. He's just flat out nuts. But at the same time, he he's nuts in a fashion that he is belligerent. I think he's decided that, you know, his form of saber rattling is how he keeps control of his his populace which essentially that the population of north korea it, it's like living in the stone age you know it, it really is and and all this would be fine you'd say okay the, the guys that this crazy you know tin pot dictator let him go um but the problem becomes he also is on the verge of developing workable nuclear weapons um two weeks ago what he ended up doing is, is they apparently did what they say was a, a nuclear device, a testing of a nuclear device that experts say um, measured at 17 times the force of the atomic bomb that uh, destroyed Hiroshima during World War II. So he's moving towards a, a nuclear world. The last thing that this world needs is crazy tin pot dictators with access to nuclear weapons. On top of that, they've been conducting a number, they being North Korea, have been conducting a number of ballistic missile tests, including, and about a week and a half ago, we had a reporter here from the third largest newspaper in Japan who was covering it. And, I, and, and they, they've been sending these missiles over Japan. And, and I said to her, what's, 
you know, tell me, give me a firsthand view of this. What's going on? What's it like? She says, well, people are, and I'm kind of paraphrasing this. I don't think she used the term freaked out, but she was essentially conveying the view that, you know, people are freaked out. I mean, they've got, you know, in Japan, they've got people on notice over certain of these areas, and they're being told, you know, you've got to be on, you know, 24-7 alert that, you know, you might get a message saying you're going to have to evacuate because this crazy person is sending ballistic missiles, um, not necessarily at Japan, but over Japan, which all you need is one to, I don't know, you know, go off track and not land in the sea of Japan, but instead, you know, land on one of the cities, and you're talking about, you know, this incredible devastation. Now, the approach thus far, the North Korean dictator has become so whacked out that even China and Russia, and China in particular, has been propping up the North Korean government for the longest time. Even China is starting to become concerned. So China has, has signed off on at least some sanctions. But the talk is, do you go further? Now, here's the story of the way the Washington Post is reporting it. This is what happened over the weekend. The Trump administration escalated its rhetoric against North Korea on Sunday, warning that time is running out for a peaceful solution between the North Korean regime and the U.S. and its allies. Administration officials said the risks from North Korea's nuclear program is rising and underscored that President Trump will confront the crisis at the General Assembly when he gives the speech. Um, though Trump's top age emphasized the administration is examining all diplomatic measures to rein in North Korea, they made clear that military options remain on the table. The U.N. ambassador, who's Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, said that if North Korea keeps on with this reckless behavior, if the United States has to defend itself or defend its ally, allies in any way, North Korea will be dis- will be destroyed. None of us want that. None of us want war. But we also have to look at the fact that you are dealing with someone, this would be the dictator, who is being reckless, irresponsible, and continuing to give threats not only to the U.S., but also to all the allies. Something is going to have to be done. And so what they're talking about is trying to impose even tougher sanctions that would essentially, the latest thing that's around, would essentially cut off all but 30% of the oil to North Korea. And if China signed up, and North Korea is, is China's principal trading partner, you know, if China went along with that, clearly it would hurt the North Korean government. It would also hurt the North Korean people. But North Korea continues to be provocative. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here, Here is the issue, and, and it's really an issue that everybody has to face nowadays. Nobody wants war. No, no, nobody wants... Nobody wants to have to go back to this troubled peninsula and have to, uh, again, revisit you know, what was going on in the early 1950s. The idea of troops on the ground is appalling. It is also destabilizing because you have all sorts of different is- issues. The one thing you don't want to do is get into a shooting war with Red China over, over North Korea. But at the same time, if you've got a madman who is intent on getting access to nuclear weapons and who continues to menace theoretically the United States, but also the U.S. allies with ballistic missiles, the question becomes, can you just let him keep doing this? Do you have to wait until he launches one of these missiles? Does military action need to be on the table? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I Look, I, I, I want to see sanctions work. 
And I continue to believe that you've got to try to get a, a diplomatic resolution. And for that, you need Moscow and you need China to be on board. Because if they cut off North Korea, uh, essentially, I think you're going to probably have some degree of regime change. But the reality is you can't allow North Korea to go nuclear. You, you can't. You can't allow North Korea to develop ballistic missiles, which seriously could um, – threaten not just Alaska, but the west coast of the United States. You cannot allow that to happen. And if all the diplomatic procedures don't work, and if the various sanctions don't work, I think the U.S. has to have a plan to be willing to, you know, bring to stop this militarily. Now, I get that easier said than done, and some people are upset at President Trump for saber-rattling, but somebody's got to do something, don't they? 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. Should we be considering military options against North Korea? And, and my answer is, yeah, I understand what, what Nikki Haley is saying. I agree with her. Time is running out for a peaceful solution. 414-799-1620. What do you think? We discuss next. It's 1117. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Eleven nineteen. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Less than two weeks left in the season, and the hunt for Brew October finds the Brewers in Pittsburgh for their final series of the year against the Pirates. Jeff and Lane are live from PNC Park. That begins at five thirty this evening here on WTMJ. You know, um, this whole thing with North Korea just it it's just flat out incredibly scary. Let's look at our text line. I say if he launches one more missile, drop flyers from above, warning the citizens they have one week, and then annihilate the country's military bases. It's not worth the risk of what that crazy person could do at any given moment. Another text. I'm thinking the time is coming when the world allies decide to take North Korea off the map. See, here's here's the problem that the Trump administration face. It's, it's not so much North Korea. I mean, North Korea is doing the menacing, but it's what 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 about China? What about you know Russia? How are they going? Are they going to use this as an excuse to escalate things? I mean, anything that anything that's done has to be done. I, I would think again as part of the United Nations, as part of this worldwide type of, of situation. But at the same time, can you really? Can you sit and, and let the guy continue to blow off nuclear devices, and the next thing you know, um, you, you've got, I, again, a bombing of Japan or something like that? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Zach in Milwaukee. Zach, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Sure. What do you think? Well, uh, this is my perspective. Uh, I'm in law enforcement in the Milwaukee County area, and we're taught when we're dealing with somebody that, for lack of a better example, like Korea, who we are given a lawful order, like, move on, you got to get out of here, you got to leave, you got to do something. We give them options first, and then we tell them flat out, if you don't do this, this will happen. If you keep on saying that, that, that last sentence, if you, if you do this, if you don't do this, this will happen, and if you keep on repeating that over and over again, you start losing credibility with that person, and you lose a grasp of the situation as a whole. Which is what so happened, I think, which is what has happened over the last decade to a decade and a half with North Korea. We keep saying, don't do this, don't do this. Here's the line in the sand, and he keeps crossing over it, and nothing happens. Uh, yes, it, I mean, that's definitely what's happening. But, you know, you kind of get a sense that we're about to act, which, I mean, better late than never, I guess. But, I mean, it's got to happen. Well, right, you, I mean, you can't have a crazy, right, you can't, I mean, you know, using your example of law enforcement, I mean, you if you've got... 
if you've got some homicidal maniac walking around with a gun and you say, hey, surrender your gun, you can try to talk him into doing that. But at some point in time, if he refuses to do it, you and your colleagues are going to take action to make sure he doesn't go and shoot a half dozen people. That's just the reality of what's going to happen. And and that's this story, except on a much, much larger scale. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it, Zach. 414-799-1620. Look, and nobody, this is not... I mean, th- this is not about the U.S. being on, on uh, again, on about regime change, although I have to believe it would be much better for the people in North Korea were the dictator to be gone. But, I mean, what's going to have to happen? I-, I guess, see, I am afraid that if we are not proactive in this regard, something really, really bad is going to happen, whether it's an attack on South Korea, whether it's an attack on Japan. Um, I, I guess potentially on the U.S., I think that's less likely. I think that what's going to happen is he'd act out ultimately, and I maybe intentionally, maybe not. I mean, I, I could see, I could see some scenario where they're they're trying to again test these ballistic missiles. They're shooting them in their provocative fashion over Japan, and because well, I don't know, just because it's North Korea. You know, one of these missiles goes off target and ends up, you know, taking out a village in Japan or something like that. You know, then the world is obviously going to have to react. But the concern isn't just North Korea. The concern is what 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 will China do? What will Russia do? More so China than Russia. But but still, you know, what will they do? Are they going to support North Korea? Now, China has said that even though they've got this treaty, like a mutual defense pact with North Korea, I mean, they've said if the United States retaliates in defense of an attack from North Korea that all bets are off. But the last thing you want to do is, again, get China involved, and then you're looking at World War III. But I think the bigger problem is you can't let this lunatic be the one that forces you into World War III. Doug in McGuanago. Doug, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. What do you think? Um, Well, Vladimir Putin... You hate to agree with him on anything, but Vladimir Putin said sanctions will never work. They will eat grass. These are his exact words. They will eat grass before they give up their nuclear program. We've cut how many treaties with them where they agreed to freeze their nuclear program or destroy right. their nuclear program, and not, they, they backslid on every one of them. Now we're at nukes, and now what are you going to do? So we attack them. And they put one of their nukes, which aren't very small, they can't put them on missiles, but they put them in a plane, and they grab some pilot's family and tell him, we're going to cut all your family's heads off if you don't do a suicide mission over Seoul and yeah. detonate this nuclear bomb. I mean, we're in a crap situation. Yeah. No, that's uh, it. I mean, Seoul, thing- Seoul is in the right. You know, your your scenario, I think, is exactly right. They've got the nuclear weapons. Um, you know, Seoul, South Korea, you know, South Korea's or, or Japan, but, you know, any of those right in that immediate area, you know, exactly, they're in the bullseye. And, you know, people are going to come out, you know what's going to happen, they're going to blame Trump for this, but this is, this goes back to Bush the Elder, Clinton, Bush the Younger, Obama have all sort of pushed it down the no, road. They've kicked, you're right, and- they've kicked the can down the road by pretending we weren't going to get to this day, and now... We're at the day where he's developing nuclear capabilities and ballistic missiles, right? And it's time to pay the piper. So now, and the problem is the Chinese and the Russians like like them because they tweak us. Yes. Putin, you know, loves North Korea because they're just a pain in our hind end. Yep. And he right. just enjoys that. And I, I, I would say the Chinese do, too, just to make us, you know. Right, because it's a problem. Effort. So what do you do? So, okay, you're, you're President Trump. What do you do? 
Um, <laughs> Fair you enough. pretty much have to put a line in the sand and say one more missile over Japan, and we will launch every single cruise missile that we can lay to bear on you and go after you personally. I mean, we need to make it clear to his military leaders. Listen, if you follow this guy in this nuts course, we're not going to stop with him. We're going to take all of you guys out and just pray that one of them pulls his pistol out and goes, enough is enough. Okay, and if China, if, if China says if, if you launch a preemptive military strike on the military bases, we're going to consider that an act of war, what do you do? I don't think China goes to the map for these guys. I, I don't. I think they don't, they don't want them to disappear. But, I mean, we should put some economic pressure on China. I think we I should go to 100% inspection on any Chinese import looking for future emerald ash borers in the pallets. We need to let those sit on the docks for three months before they can be released. It's going to hurt us because we've allowed ourselves to get dependent on Chinese imports. But it's going to hurt them a lot more. Right now, I think you're quietly because they're they're Orientals and they don't like to lose face. But we need to somehow send a message to the Chinese that this is going to hurt them worse than it's going to hurt us. So it's time to reunify Korea. No, thanks. Well, I mean, I I do. I mean, I don't know about the losing face type of thing, but I I do think there needs to be back channel negotiations with this because I, I, I continue to think that China is the key. And I agree with you, Doug. I think that I can't imagine that they really that either Chinese, the Chinese or Russians really like having this crazy because they understand he's a destabilizing force. I think your analysis is right that it, it is it's it tweaks the United States just like the United States back in the day was thrilled when the Russian army got involved in Afghanistan, which ended up being a, a massive defeat. You know, you see the movie or read the book Charlie Wilson's War. That that's what that was all about. So again, like the the U.S. military in Afghanistan, you know, Russia and Afghanistan, we were happy with the rebels because again, it, it tweaked the, the Russians. I think there is some of that going on. At the same time, I do believe that the China and Russia have to realize what a threat this guy is to the stability of the world, and that ends up hurting everyone. So I I think everything – I agree with the president. I'm going to be curious as to see what he says just tomorrow when he speaks to the U.N., because I think everything needs to be on the table. As a starting point, I think the sanctions need to be even more severe because this – I firmly believe that at least a lot of the worst of the stuff that's going on ends – if there is a leadership change in North Korea. It's 1128. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1137. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, so um, last night I'm watching the Packers game, but also it was the debut of of a 10-part, 18-hour PBS documentary series called The Vietnam War. It's done by Ken Burns, who's the guy probably most famous for doing the Civil War. Um, documentary. He's done a number of other ones. He's done one on World War II called The War. He's done a baseball one. He's done, again, several of these. Um, To me, the Civil War was his first and it's probably his most famous one. But 40 years after Vietnam, he's now tackled Vietnam. And I I was, as as a child of that era, and I I was too young for Vietnam, but I was, I've always been fascinated with it because, I mean, if you grew up during that era, 
it, it does affect your world view. There's just no question about it. And the, the first episode, the 90-minute one I, I saw last night, was just um, was just amazing. I mean, it, it just was. It seems to be extremely well done. And I understand Ken Burns is a, is a big-time lefty, but that doesn't mean that the work isn't, isn't good. And this is going to feature the entire experience with Vietnam. What it did last night is in the starting one, it really, I mean, it went back to the history of, of how it went back to the essentially it started in the 30s and 40s and started tracing how the U.S. got involved in, in Vietnam through a series of of miscalculations. It was um, after in interestingly during World War Two, when we were at war with Japan, one of the, the fears was that that Vietnam would fall under Japanese influence. And so the U.S. actually, you know, went in and provided money and training to help the Vietnamese to be prepared to to fight off Japan if Japan tried to take over Vietnam. So, I mean, Ho Chi Minh, who was, for people who know their history, who was the leader of the the the, the attacks, the North Korean attacks, and um, the, the leader of the insurrection. I mean, he was. He was originally um, a very pro-American. He got lots of his training from the Americans, and um, you know he. It's interesting because it's kind of like, well, they never under, He really never understood why America, who he thought, hey, this is great. This is a, a country that was founded by people fleeing, you know, persecution, and they fight for their independence and like the Revolutionary War. Why? Why are they trying to suppress us simply because you know we're, we're communists? So he never quite got that. And then it traces what ended up happening is after World War II. Vietnam, which had been French-dominated, it was kind of essentially the equivalent of a French colony. Um, you know, France didn't want to give it up, so um, the Allies said, "Okay, you know, the French, you can continue to control Vietnam." And then, when the Vietnamese started uprising against the French, the, the U.S., because they France was an ally, started siding with the French, which is what created the, the animosity towards Americans. But at least according to this documentary, and it's it's interesting. I mean, it, it kind of lays out the idea that, at least in the view of this documentary filmmaker, you know, the, the insurgents in Vietnam were very pro-U.S. until the U.S. in the 50s decided they were going to try to support the French the French colonialists, and that's what then drove the rift. But it was just an absolutely fascinating story. Now, of course, this comes at the same time that locally our Honor Flight, what a good job the folks at Honor Flight do, um, Honor Flight, which again started as a way to take the World War II veterans to see the World War II Memorial in Washington, and then they, they graduated, and then they were taking Korean War veterans. That The first flight of Vietnam War veterans to Washington uh, occurred over the weekend, and I know our own John McCure is probably going to be talking a lot about that on his show later on this afternoon. But now we've come up to the the Vietnam experience. 58,000 approximately Americans lost their lives, you know, in in Vietnam from the the early 60s through our our eventual departure in the, you know, early to mid-70s, mid-70s actually. Um, So this is something that's clearly affected people. Whenever I go to Washington, D.C., I mean, Seriously, I 
always or almost always find time. You go down to the, the Lincoln Memorial. You sit and you look at the Lincoln Memorial. You turn right. You walk down this little pathway, and then you have the Vietnam Veterans Wall. And I, I will tell you, every time I've been there, it is just an incredibly moving experience and that's just the people who lost their lives in fighting in vietnam not to mention all the people whose lives were forever altered by the experiences they had in the war returning so i have been i i've read a lot of stuff about it like i said i was a little bit too young for this but older brothers of friends of mine certainly you know served in the war and and i know a lot of you served in the war as well in vietnam um, and it's the, the sacrifice. It was what was called an unpopular war. The way that Vietnam veterans were treated remains a national disgrace. It, it seriously does, because too many people in this country were unable to separate what was an unpopular pol- a war the hostility they had to politicians, they were unable to separate that from the people who were, I mean, drafted, the young men who went over and, and served our country. And that continues to be just an absolute national disgrace. But one of the le- – there's a number of lessons of Vietnam, and, and one of them to me has always been that, first of all, you, you do not get into a conflict that you do not think you can win. And one of the things that uh, apparently I think is going to become very, very clear from this documentary is that the U.S., President Johnson, knew, for example, when he was escalating the war in Vietnam, that, that there weren't, they weren't going to win. There, there was not a winning strategy. But because in 1964 he'd run for president promising that would be, we'd, stop North, we'd stop North Vietnam, um, he, he decided, even against his better judgment, that, yes, we're going to continue to escalate this. So, number one, you know, I think one of the current lessons is you, you never get involved in a conflict that you can't win. Number two, you have to figure out what exactly does winning mean. And number three, sometimes just because you get into something doesn't mean you you should just automatically continue digging yourself that that hole. And just because you make a series of, of bad decisions one after another that gets you into something, sometimes, as I frequently say, when you've dug yourself a hole, what you need to do is just climb out of it, fill it up, declare victory, and and move on. And we did not do that in Vietnam, and as a result, 58,000 people ended up losing their lives. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Given the fact that we've got the honor flights that are now going to Vietnam, given the fact that you have this documentary which is running on PBS, and again, it's... I, I, you know, I, I would encourage you to watch it. I know this is going to be watch, must watch, you know, TV for me over the course of the next, you know, week or two. But, but I guess, in particular, I, I'd like to talk to people who, if you served our country in that fashion, or again, if you were around then and remember those turbulent times, because it's, it's, if if you do. You, you will remember it. It's kind of a defining thing. There are certain things, certain things that go on in life that end up defining your worldview. September 11th, 2001 is one. I, I think the Vietnam War leading to Watergate it is a, another one. And I, I think that I am concerned that the lessons of Vietnam are, are lost on us today. 
I think, and I'm, I'm not trying to be political about this, but that this idea of when you use military force, what the objective needs to be, and how you define victory. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And for those of you who served our country 40, 45, 50 years ago, um, during that, that time, um, as, as you look back, um, are, are there lessons that we need to learn? Let's start with Russ on the north side. Russ, you're first. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I was there, and I believe that during that time, nobody could give me a good reason as to why we were there. And I was a military instructor. Mm-hmm. I used to run joint training exercises between the Army and the Air Force. And we used to train, we used to teach escape and evasion and what the pilots were to do, how they were to conduct themselves if shot down behind enemy lines. Right. Now, the reason, the big mistake that the United States made as far as getting into the Vietnam War is they had to realize that the Vietnamese had been fighting war. That's all they knew for over a hundred years. It was a civil war, exactly. Yeah, it, they were very patient people. We were not. We wanted to get in there and get this war over with and get back home. Every guy that uh, I served with uh, just wanted to get back to the get back to the world, as we used to call it. Now Johnson sent in when he escalated the Vietnam War in 1964. He sent in the first Cav and the 101st Airborne Division. Now these guys, and they, when they were fighting, and they took the same hill many times over and over again. If you read, uh, uh, there's a, a book called Matterhorn. Mm-hmm. And that was, one of the, that was one of the hills that uh, uh, we lost so many men on because the hill was taken uh, over by the Vietnamese, and actually by Viet Cong, and the uh, fight, they were turned back so many times, and then their orders were to once again go and take the same hill. And that happened in, in uh, a number of different areas. Hamburger Hill was another one where the uh, troops lost the first round and then they went back in to, or ordered to go back in and take it again. So the thing is, is that these, the Vietnamese were so patient. They could dig themselves in, especially the Viet Cong. These were the Viet Cong were the guys that were running around in the little black pajamas, the safety right. pajamas. And the North Vietnamese regulars, they weren't really the ones that we were fighting. We were fighting the Kong. They were like uh, almost like guerrilla fighters. Right. But they were the ones that uh, I was in the train when a Viet Cong uh, threw a satchel charge into the second corps ammo dump of the train. Wow. And he penetrated the perimeter. He got through the barbed wire. They only they stripped to the waist and they wore like a loincloth around their uh, their waist. And they could strip down, they could get through that sharp concertina wire and all that barbed wire and everything. And yes. this guy got through the perimeter. The guard, he, uh, none of the guards detected him. He threw a satchel charge right mm-hmm. into the ammo, uh, ammo Wait, dump. Russ, what years were you there? I'm curious. 1970. Okay, 1970. Thank, thank you yeah. for the call and, th- and thanks for the service. I, I just, it, it's, I, one of the things I think this is really like must watch viewing is, uh, again, and, and Russ was kind of talking about that. You you make these these faulty assumptions that the big error in Vietnam to me was this assumption that we're, we're, we're fighting communism, that this is going to be, you know, if you allow this to fall, the, the entire 
all, all of Southeast Asia is going to go communist, where what Russ is talking about, I think, is pretty right. This, this was just the Civil War. As a matter of fact, that's like I said, Ho Chi Minh, this documentary saying he was very pro-American until the Americans decided to fund the, the French colonialists. So it was just you, you make some of these faulty assumptions, and then you, you just you, you keep going. It's 1149. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1153, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Lee in Sheboygan. Lee, good morning. Good morning. I heard your show and thought maybe I'd chime in. I just got back from that honor flight that just went to D.C. Oh, outstanding. Had you been there before? Had you seen the wall before? I actually lived for three years in northern Virginia, so yes, I had seen the wall, but we saw many other memorials that were first-timers for me. Okay. Okay. Um, what, what did you you serve? You served in you were in Vietnam yourself. You said yes, uh, seventy seventy one. Okay, was my time to serve there. Okay, um, have you have you did you get a chance to watch any of this documentary, or do you intend to? I it's recorded. I it was just you know we had just gotten back and right. we were just basically reading the Facebook posts and all right. that. But, um, the I intend to. Anything by Ken Burns is going to be good, and I'm happy that uh, he's covering this subject so that people will understand right. what we went through. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I, I understand, Lee. Um, um, but, Lee, thank you. Thank you so very much for your service. I, I, I appreciate this greatly, and I, I know we're, we're all trying to make sense of this, and uh, especially especially the, the people that did so much like you did 45 years ago. So, I mean, I think this honor flight is a great thing. But my um, m- my comment here is I, I think I think this should be required viewing for everybody, um, regardless of what your age is. Because just like we were talking about 9-11 the other day, I mean, 9-11, if, you were, if you're under the age of, like, 20, you probably don't remember September 11th. And if you're under the age of, I don't know, 50, you probably don't remember Vietnam. And you need to. We all need to. 